You are listening to Checkbox Outreach, a podcast that showcases excellence and raises awareness of current issues from those who are directly impacted, but typically not at the table. Now, here are your hosts, Aaliyah Gaskins and Katie Leonard. Hi, welcome to Checkbox Outreach. This is Katie. And this is Aaliyah. And we are excited to be joined by two of the most dynamic and phenomenal women that I am privileged to know. And I'm excited to introduce Katie to them and their light and just have this great conversation. So first off, we have Xenia Ruiz. And Xenia is from, well, she lives in Northern Virginia. And she is a former dreamer and an immigration activist. And then we also have Michelle Cayosa. And Michelle lives in Maryland. She's an urban planner, and she is Zambian and Nigerian. So welcome to the show, ladies. Thank you for having us. Hi. Thank you for having me, and thank you for starting this entire project. We are having a lot of fun. Uh, (laughs) I owe the idea to Katie, but I'm excited to be on this journey with her. Yes. And literally, as you guys just experienced for the last 37 minutes, we are figuring it out (laughs) as we go. So it's awesome. I, it's the only uh, way. Exactly. But I'm I'm really excited to have you guys on. Clearly meet you. You both seem super awesome. Colorism is a really important conversation that we need to be having in black and brown communities because it, it really guides how we treat each other, how we empower each other. And then also in the terms of what we're looking at in checkbox outreach with allies and people who are interested in supporting black and brown communities it's important for them to know that there's this whole other dynamic that we experience. So not only do we experience external racism, but there's also these dynamics within people of color that we go through every single day. And it's not just black communities. These are global issues across the board in Caribbean countries and Latin countries. And so when we look at the color of our skin and how it shows up in conversations and how it shows up in our everyday lives, it's it's powerful, right? It, it leads us on to this trajectory of who we think we are, our importance, our value. So this is the second part of the conversation. And in the first part of the conversation, it was very clear that women experience colorism much differently than men do. And so I'm really excited for the conversation, excited to hear more about your experiences and your backgrounds. I guess starting with you, Michelle, can you just tell us a little bit about you know, where you're from and what your experience is based on the color of your skin. Sure, no problem. Um, So I am half Zambian, half Nigerian. My father's side is Nigerian. My mother's side is Zambian. And I was actually raised more so by my Zambian side. Um, I think I can start with, I didn't know I was black until I moved to this country. (laughs) Which is odd. It sounds odd. I'm coming from a very homogeneous country. Like, everyone looks like me. But I had no idea I was Black until I moved here. So I was born in Kenya. But um, I split my early years between Zambia and Kenya. And then I eventually, when I moved here, um, like I said, I found out about my skin and the identity that goes along with it. Um, And I garnered all of this through, you know, the kindergarten scene, uh, which is kind of mm. scary if you think about it. I, like kindergartners are having these conversations, and you know, when I did find out, I remember going home and asking my mom, like, "Am I black?" And like the undertone of the question was just like, "There's so much dread," and just like an "Oh God, say no," because like 
everyone else is making me feel bad about this complexion. But, you know, meanwhile, I've been living this life not knowing that I was just black. Um, but that was just like, that was early years. Fast forward to, um, you know, being older and being raised by my mother and my fam- family. Um, it was ingrained in me how beautiful my skin was. And for a good chunk of my family, it's also very interesting to be considered lighter um, than them. And, you know, in America, it's like, no, you're, you're just dark skinned. I don't think there's variations of dark skin. It's just like, if you're not this complexion, you move forward into dark skin. And that's where you can get all of your, I guess, respect and um, just, just, the thoughts about you from the world. Um, but I never felt bad about my complexion with my family. If anything, like I said, I was raised to just be proud of it, just be proud of the fact that I was black. If anything, I wanted to be a little bit darker um, because, again, I'm like one of the lighter ones in my family. I'm not ignorant to the fact that my culture and then the, the family system I grew up in was just very supportive of that. I went home and I was instantly validated all of the time. Like, there's nothing wrong with your complexion. You're beautiful. It doesn't matter how anyone else feels um, towards you. You're beautiful. And just be confident in that fact. Um, But I know a lot of people don't get that. um, Because actually one of the friends that I made um, in a fellowship I did not too long ago, you know, she's also African. But she's West African. Um, And her takes on colorism are completely different to mine. Not that she didn't get any validation at home, but it was more so her societal um, upbringing kind of showed her where she fell in terms of of this color spectrum. Um, But for the most part, she's, she's still very proud of who she is, thanks to her mother having that strong figure in her life, telling her and validating her um, in what she was. That's my take yeah. on colorism. No, we're going to talk about a lot more, so don't you worry. You're going to have okay. more opportunities. Zena, what about you? It's hard to know where to start because the conversation and the topic of colorism in the Latino community is so big and so heavy and so important that there's just so many different things and aspects and points. And we have a ton of work to do as a Latino community in confronting colorism and confronting racism within ourselves. And the experience of Afro-Latinos is so unique and so under-discussed in so many places and so many contexts that it's, um, it's super important. And, you know, right now it's, critical for for brown communities to be having the same exact conversations about the ways in which we have navigated colorism and and you know identify it name it talk about it and and begin to to confront it within ourselves because there is historically and there is still and almost every latino family you talk to has a story about you know relatives uh relatives in their families who've said um, racist things about Afro-Latinos or the Black community, and it's often dismissed and people make excuses because, oh, she's just joking, she doesn't know better, you know, like, that tia or tío, like the, the older relative, they don't know any better. So there's a lot of work to be done. For me, growing up in the community that I did, I, I was born in Mexico. 
My entire family is Mexican. I am, I am, you know, as many generations from Mexico as, as you can plot. Um, was born in Mexico, moved to Florida when I was a baby. And the community that I grew up in, I didn't see a whole lot of people who looked like me. Um, the community in Florida that I grew up in is, is very diverse, but uh, you tended to see a lot more Cuban-Americans um, who, depending on, you know, which part of town you were in, um, you were, you were, you know, among a lot more lighter skinned Latino folks than, than brown skin. And so I am brown and I always knew that, you know, and I, I knew that I looked different from a lot of the spaces that I was in. And so, you know, I, I grew up navigating a lot of white spaces in schools and in sports. Um, and so I knew that I was different, but it, it really wasn't until um, I was probably like in middle school where you really start to think about all the ways in which you've internalized colorism. And so I, I always loved my skin, but I knew that it was different. I always liked being brown, but there's ways in which it starts to get internalized. I'm sure we'll talk about this, but for a lot of women, the way that it presents itself is, you know, when you're growing up, when you're younger is when it comes to beauty standards and being reflected in the culture around you. Part of the problem for us is look like the Latino community is such a massive diaspora. And so the conversation around colorism is so intertwined with the conversation around identity and it is, vastly complex for so many people because your experience as an Afro-Cuban or um, an, Afro, uh, an Afro-Latino in, in the Dominican Republic is going to be different than, you know, if you're a fair-skinned Latino from Argentina or from Chile or from Cuba. Um, and, you know, other complex factors within some Latin American countries, which are much more classist and have sort of a caste system is, you know, the, the ruling elites and the elite classes tend to be, uh, tend to be lighter skinned and there is history of oppression and um, subjugation of indigenous cultures and, and darker skinned folks in those countries. And, you know, part of that is also like learning the history and for, for, you know, a girl growing up, where I grew up in Florida, you know, we don't even know who, we don't even know our own history and our presence in America. We don't learn about Cesar Chavez. So we don't learn that history and we don't learn about the history of enslaved Africans in Latin America, which is a much longer history than it is in America. And a lot of folks don't realize that is that slaves were in Latin America brought from, from, um, Europe, um, Far, for far more centuries than America and not knowing that history is part of why, you know, it, it's hard to understand all the complicated ways in which we confront colorism today. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I, there's so much to talk about that it, it feels overwhelming, um, but it is, it is such a problem. It is so institutionalized and internalized. And we have got to start somewhere. 
Well, I just want to say thank you both for being on and being so vulnerable and candid with us and sharing your story, because I think that's part of where the conversation starts. Um, I imagine we're going to touch on so many issues just hearing what you both said from global perspectives to gender to history and how all of it plays into colorism and how we experience the world and the spaces around us. Before we go any further, Xenia, I want to piggyback on something you said. You said it's important for communities to talk about both racism and colorism. And I suspect there may be some of our listeners who don't know the difference. I'm just wondering if you could give us your um, your take on what's the difference between racism and colorism? A very good and complicated question. Um, <laughs> give us a, the spark notes and then we'll, we'll dive in and unpack it as well. Yeah, I mean, colorism, colorism really reflects, I think, you know, our, our attitudes about how people are treated based upon their proximity to whiteness and how they appear in their appearance. It's around how, how are the ways in which you present centered around whiteness and that includes you know white white standards for for appearance white beauty standards um so much um so i really see that as as how i think about colorism michelle what about you your definition of colorism um it's it's quite similar it's like you're so there's a spectrum like i mentioned before i guess a spectrum of color and at the end, you have your darker skin and you have white skin. And so in other people's ability to relate to you, sometimes when we're looking at colorism, it's like, how can I relate to this person based off of where they land on the spectrum? Um, if they're closer to the wider side of the spectrum, can I, will I feel more comfortable talking to them? Will I feel able to relate to them more? Do I feel like they deserve more respect because of that? Um, and if they fall towards the other end of the spectrum, the same questions also follow. And I mean, we see in society that it ends up being those who are on the lighter side of the spectrum that do kind of garner more of this respect and uh, just comfort. Yeah, people are, feel more comfortable around them. Yeah. What about racism? Um, you know, for, for racism, it's it's. I think it's easier to stand, to understand in an example where like you can be racist against Mexicans, but the way in which you might personally treat a white presenting Latino might be very different from how you personally treat a darker skinned Latino. And so it's, it's possible that both of these things can be held, held true, right? You can be racist towards a group of people, but still, be treated differently and have a different experience based upon colorism. Um, and we see that a lot in Latin America, right? Like, you know, colorism affects how you're, how you interact in the world. And as you know, I, I have, I have siblings who are lighter skinned than, than I am and how they're treated in a store might be completely different than how I'm treated. If I walk into a, a certain store and it doesn't, you know, it, it's both true that, you know, the people in the store are, are both racist, but our, the ways in which we're treated differently, even though related, is, is you know, partially based on, on colorism, right? The way that we present to the world. I think in both, there's a level of hate known and unknown. Um, 
definitely, I feel like colorism plays into racism in most times. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm inclined to say that maybe racism has a little bit more action to it than colorism. And colorism is like the, how can I even put this? Colorism is just a nicer way of being racist, I guess. If you can tack on colorism to it, maybe it's a little bit nicer. Um, and you're not necessarily able to say racist, but I want to say it's the same thing in a lot of ways. Colorism, you just find within a bubble, within a community a little bit more, but it's all because of racism, in my opinion. For me, my take is it definitely started, it's rooted in racism, right? From when you look at slavery and the slave trade, and you look at in American slavery, that the lighter skinned people were, you know, had the the housekeeping jobs, whether it was because they were related to the family through rape, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's rooted in racism. But I think colorism is more of a political game. Like I, I said in our previous episode that it's the politics of color and it's the politics of race. And when right. we have all these structures and these policies and these systems and behaviors that value whiteness over darkness, that's where it, mm. it starts to, to boil up. And then you kind of ingrained where certain people might dislike themselves because of the color of their skin. Because again, what they see in right. the media what they read, what they're exposed to every day, it's safer to be on the lighter end of the spectrum. I think just like we talk about implicit bias, you don't realize, you know, it's not overt. It's not something that you naturally am like, oh, you know, she's light and she's lighter, so I'm going to go over here. You just, you do it because that's how we've been socialized. And so I think there's so many factors. And then when you look at women, and particularly, Xenia, you hit this hit on this earlier in the beauty industry and where the major brands are just now starting to carry darker shades. So it took Rihanna and Fenty to come along and blow it out of the water for them to be like, right. oh, wait, maybe we should have makeup for all skin shades. And now you see it not just in makeup, but even bra companies are finally like nude wear used to just be light skin or a fair skin. Now you're seeing, I think, I forget what it is. I've seen the commercial where it's like a bra company that now has 30 different shades. And it's like, again, going back to some of the things that were talked about in the beginning around like the mental implications and the way in which we internalize these things. If you go to a store and the very product you're trying to find to feel beautiful or to fit your shape or fit your skin tone, they don't even make anything that looks like you. How are you supposed to process that? But even the fact that, you know, Rihanna... Rihanna was able to do that as a celebrity and using her capital to, to create this change in the market. But would she have been able to do that if she were, uh, you know, if she were much darker and how her career would have been impacted, you know, if she was much darker and thinking through like what percent of the people that are shown to us in popular culture, you know, reflect that diaspora and you know for for the latino community there are very very few folks who are indigenous the vast majority of celebrities you know you can even kind of see the evolution right like even the people that we we hold to our highest 
um, you know, the folks who are champions, right, like Jennifer Lopez, like you can track how their careers evolved and how, you know, they might have looked at the beginning of their careers and how subtle changes that one can argue are perceived as being, you know, oh, she got whiter or she, she made these changes, she did her hair this way, this is, this is whiter hair, whatever. Um, we have very few examples of darker skinned or more indigenous um, celebrities or folks who have, you know, access to capital to, to create changes in, in other parts of the marketplace where it's needed. Um, so that's, that's part of the conversation too, is how little we have as a culture around us to be able to see ourselves reflected. And so even when we make progress, right, even when we have more Latinos at the seat of leadership, whether that's in Hollywood, in the media, in politics, in media companies, in business, how many of them are truly reflective of, of the actual experience and, and diaspora of our communities. And like I said, if you look around at the Latinos we have in leadership, which are very few in any given sector, you're going to tend to see, right, the, the lighter skinned Latinos, you're going to tend to see folks who, who are, are perceived and uh, who, you know, may have features that are, are perceived as being closer to whiteness. Than, than others. I think you raise a really good point, which is around kind of access to capital and how money and what we think sells, what we think is electable, how all of that is also, you know, has roots and is aligned to this very conversation about colorism. And, you know, thinking about, even if we take a very simple example, like Barbie, thinking about the Barbies that the industry thinks will sell, how do we shape those to a vision or a vision of beauty that often in our culture is the white standard of beauty because we think that those are the ones that are going to fly off the shelf versus having Barbies. I think just now we have Barbies that are of darker skin, are of other races and ethnicities, um, have different hair textures. And what most of us on this call, we're now just approaching 30. Like, it's taken that long. I actually want to um, touch on one point you made, Xenia. You mentioned the fact that, you know, Yes, we have Fenty Beauty, thank God. Well, you can say thank God, but yes, thank God. Um, he touched on Fenty Beauty and how if maybe Rihanna was a darker-skinned woman and, you know, we're talking on capital and making things happen, would it have happened any quicker? Would would Basically, are there were there any other women who are maybe darker who could have made this happen and would it have been as successful? But I think oftentimes with darker-skinned women especially in America, um, we kind of take what we can get. I never once thought about it like that, like, oh, you know, could a darker-skinned woman have done what Rihanna just did? I never thought about it like that. I was just like, thank God someone finally did. Mm -hmm. Am I misconstruing your comment or, you know? No, 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 no. I think it speaks to the fact that it is so hard to break through in any industry, in any in any you know, sphere of society and institutions, whether you're a black woman or a brown woman, that like we celebrate all of the above, right? Like, like right. we we praise the work of any champion and ally we can get, and any anybody who is able to quote unquote make it is is worth celebrating. But it's also thinking through, like, well, you know, besides the fact that these people are 
you know, Jennifer Lopez and Rihanna are both inarguably completely amazing rock star champions um, in a lot of different ways, but thinking through, okay, why, why is it, I think it's important to examine that like out of, out of all the folks in our communities who quote unquote make it, right. You know, what are these patterns and, and, you know, even though we're able to achieve a level of success, you know, thinking through why is it that some people have an easier time breaking those barriers, not to say that those barriers are easily broken by anybody. I like that you said have an easier time because I feel like it's an easier time in any context that you look at it, an easier time with your experience in a restaurant, an easier time in education, an easier time navigating your day. And Michelle, I'm, I'm really, what we talked about on the first part of this was our upbringing and what we experience at home. Mm-hmm. And I think your experiences is captivating to me because you were celebrated at home and you wanted to be darker. How did you navigate that in going out into the world now in America where this is a really big deal? How, how did you deal with that every day? Um, well, the thing is, again, so I'm definitely, like I said, not ignorant to what darker skinned women are going through because I'm darker skinned. Um, I notice when I'm out with lighter friends and they get more attention when I was single. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I noticed when my other friends were just a little bit more approachable, even though they gave no reason to be approachable. You can see them not having a good time, not wanting to be there, nothing. While I'm here, big smile, everything. No attention. It's fine. I'm not salty. (laughs) um, (laughs) That's right. Your girl is engaged now and about to have a huge wedding. She's not reflecting on the past. (laughs) Right. But um, you you notice the differences. Um, Of course, you feel bad in in those moments and you start to question, like, okay, well, what is beauty? Am I not beautiful enough? Was my whole family, was my mother, my father, were they lying to me? Like, these, no one else is seeing the beauty that they saw. You guys had to think I was beautiful. But I think the beauty in just knowing that my family also thought I was beautiful was just having that backing and something to lean on to just be like, no, 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 you have nothing to do with what this outside um, influence is thinking of you. You were raised to know that you're beautiful. You know that you're beautiful. Like You kind of have to easier said than done but you like I had to remove myself from a lot of situations and just try to get back to what I knew of who I am um I remember one relationship he was also darker skinned um and he thought it was a compliment to tell me you know you're the first dark skinned girl that I've been with (laughs) and I think he thought that I would be like, oh, my gosh, I am beautiful. This is great. Oh, thank you. Like, that's so sweet. But it it had the opposite effect. I was like, so what did you think? What were you trying to get from me? Is it me that is special or you that actually needs to be checked and needs help for feeling that that was a compliment to me? You need to broaden your horizon, sir. um, (laughs) Such a polite, (laughs) polite way. (laughs) But really, it's always just been a thing of, like, I have this strong culture. I have this strong family that has raised me to be this. Um, I have to I have to get out of it. And I think 
what helps again is that family having that um, just being rooted in who I was told that I was and then having to face the world and combat the world with like, it doesn't matter what you say I am. I know who I am because I have this whole family to tell me and this whole culture to tell me who I was. Um, everybody doesn't have that. I'm very aware of that. I'm very aware that my situation is very different um, and somewhat unique for a lot of people. Um, but it, 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 that's just how I function. That's just how I moved. Mm-hmm. I hope that answered your question. So I feel like right now with the murder of George Floyd, our country is, I don't know, wrestling with this moment around race and how do we talk about race? How do we deal with issues of racial injustice? And what does it look like for us to really have these conversations in ways that we have not had before? And I guess I'm wondering, like, why now, why in the midst of those conversations is it so important for people to have also this conversation around colorism and to understand that every black person, every brown person doesn't have the same experience? And that's open to anybody. I think at the end of the day, once we combat everything, once we get justice, because we just have to, I'm hopeful. I have to be. We all have to be hopeful that something um, awesome, something good, something new will come out of this. But um, I think once we've dealt with just getting justice, we have to come back and start thinking, okay, we, we, we've been seen as a group, but now we need to talk about how we also within ourselves bring, can have the ability to bring each other down. How can we end this cycle of um, our own kind of racism, our own colorism, um, to have a to have the future that we're currently fighting for. Sydney, I'm curious if you have thoughts on that question. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's about an examination of privilege at every level. And when you're talking about colorism, you're talking about a, a complex relationship with privilege, where you know how you know, if you're darker skinned or lighter skinned or or how you, how you look to the outside world is going to be sometimes different than how you personally identify and being able to recognize the levels of privilege that exist within, within that is kind of step one. And it's also important to think about it in terms of, right, like how these things get internalized within ourselves and be able to have you know, those reflections, right? Like I, I always loved my skin and never wanted to change my skin, but I remember in the nineties, you know, everyone had straight hair. Right. And I remember when I got my first hair straightener, the feeling that I had when I straightened my hair completely. And I remember thinking like, Oh, I have white girl hair now. Like this is a good thing. And it made me feel better about myself. Not that I didn't you know, that I had a, a, I didn't have a profound, you know, gap of confidence, but just seeing that change kind of made me think about myself differently and how I can, how I can exist in a certain space. And so that's, that's colorism, right? And so I think it's also important to think through the ways all this stuff gets internalized and how, you know, for us as a community and what ways in what ways are we using, you know, performance as survival? And so sometimes that's, that's code switching. That's, 
making deliberate choices consciously or unconsciously or unconsciously for those that, that might not know can you just define code switching we know we're all familiar, <laughs> <laughs> all familiar. i mean i'll start by saying it, it, it can be different in different communities right but you know for for me it can be choosing to speak spanish or speak english it can it, that can be like the most the most obvious you know yeah. way that we talk about code switching but it's also in how we present ourselves how we talk you know, yeah, what's I'm going through my mind is how many people in my life have said, oh, you talk white or you sound white. Oh, and yeah. yeah. But the thing about that is being able to think through in what ways am I doing this code switching or whatever? And in what ways am I sounding white or choosing to choosing things that bring me closer to whiteness as a way to access resources and capital in different places? And in what ways is this right? some some internalized stuff that is a lot more unconscious you know when do I think I'm prettiest when do I think I'm most attractive um what do I value in a partner when I'm dating like do I have biases that make me feel like I'm more attracted or less attracted to, to different types of people you know that's those are more implicit biases that that colors and effects but for a lot of us you know these other choices to look more white, sound more white, whatever, are in fact ways to survive and to, to thrive to the extent we can in certain spaces. And I think that's something that also gets overlooked is that, you know, sometimes these are choices that we have to make in order to make progress for ourselves or for our communities, right? So, you know, if you, if you work in a certain industry and you decide to straighten your hair and, you know, to, to speak a certain way or um, to use certain pictures and your, your profiles that you, you portray publicly in what ways are those choices in order for you to, to gain access to something that you otherwise wouldn't have access to or would have a harder time accessing? And in what ways are these really just, um, you know, internalized? And both of these things are complicated and important to explore. Right. I think it goes back to where we started this conversation that the problem with colorism is that inherently it is about creating an advantage, the lighter you are, and a disadvantage, the darker you are. And that that then leads to these very comments you're saying about survival and how you perform not only just within conversations and interactions with folks of your own race or your own culture, but then how do you perform with your white counterparts as well? And what are the ways in which this performance then also perpetuates and holds up a culture of whiteness or white as the standard. Totally. And the problem with that is the burdens on us then, right? Like then it's like, it's both true that we have to have these examinations, but it's also like, this is all intellectual and emotional labor that we're doing. But yeah. like, yeah, what are, what are the white people doing? You know, but it, it adds to this whole conversation of when we talk about the stressors and the complexities of our everyday life. Like I don't enter a room without doing a quick scan of who looks like me and immediately, right. immediately thinking of how I'm going to be treated. Just ba again, I'm doing the same thing, right? I have my bias. And so it's just something I just, you know, really was listening to like Erica Badu's bag lady and all this baggage we carry with us. And 
when when can we let it go because it weighs us down right we can't run fast we can't catch the bus and she just keeps saying pack light and i know that's about our own personal issues and our our own things that we're working through but i also think in a broader context it's all these thoughts and expectations we have based on our our color and what and how we compare with other people i mean it's also really complicated in the latino community because you know we we use identity to police ourselves and to criticize each other. And so, you know, language is part of that and, and appearance can be part of that, but it, it can be true where, you know, a lighter skinned Latina who speaks Spanish might shame an indigenous or darker looking uh, Latino or Latina who either doesn't speak Spanish or who, um, you know, whose, whose Spanish is more broken or less fluent. And it's possible for them to criticize that person as being less Latino or less Hispanic based upon how well they speak Spanish. And so the complexity of identity is wildly, wildly complicating for, for folks in our community. And it's, it's, it's tough because it's, we all have common challenges and barriers and you know we all talk about like the white supremacy and the patriarchy are a common enemy and like let's all band together against the real enemy but also you know we police each other and and being able to say like how do I actually identify because apparently I'm not Latino enough because I don't speak Spanish but I'm darker skinned and I'm more likely to get pulled over or I'm more likely to get treated a certain way by law enforcement so it's it's super complex and frustrating and it can really mess up with how you think of yourself and how you identify. And, you know, there's this, there's this phrase in Spanish based on a movie that's ni de aquí ni de allá means like from neither here nor there. And it can really screw you up mentally when you don't really have a sense of like, well, who am I? Where am I from? You know? No, Katie and I were just talking the other day about how this policing happens in black communities as well. And are you black enough to talk about a certain issue or to be outraged when you see the things that we are all watching on the news right now? And just how like frustrating, how maddening, how like I don't even know the right word because I can't I can't describe it, but how that makes you feel when like you are part of a community too, but you've been policed out by the very people who, you know, you would consider your brothers and sisters in, in this movement and in this fight, um, just because of the different skin tones that we have. I do want to, as we prepare to kind of wrap up our conversation, I just kind of want to, Katie and I talk about this, it's not necessarily that this is all work that we need to do, that it's work that we have to do individually, it's system work, it's work that our allies need to do. But I do want this to be a conversation that also has um, some advice or actions for others. So I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts on how more people can begin to have conversations about colorism or celebrating and embracing their skin tone? I mean, I can only speak for my community and I'll say like, Part of it is taking a good hard look at the reality and, you know, whether that's right, our media, if you turn on any, any Spanish language television show and you see the programming, right? Like all the telenovelas, they're all pretty much, uh, they all look the same, right? It's very, a Eurocentric kind of, you know, light skinned, um, 
ideal, all the newscasters are, are lighter skinned. Um, I think it starts by taking a look at the reality and thinking about that and thinking about like, well, what is it that you see first of all? And, you know, thinking through, okay, who, who are our, our, our champions and our allies and our, our idols that are, are on pedestals publicly and taking a look at, you know, what does that look like? And, and also taking the time, not just to look at the reality of what surrounds you, but to learn your history. It's so important that we learn about the history of the Afro-Latino community in Latin America. And, you know, part of that is because of, you know, the curriculum, and I, I know it's similar in the Black community, but like the books that are shown to you and that you learn from when you're growing up don't tell you about your own history in a lot of cases and a lot of places, and it's the same for us. So even though it may not always be our fault, it's still our responsibility. You know, I myself, I, I had no idea that like Henry Louis Gates actually has an entire PBS series on on the experience of Africans in Latin America and the history of that. And so it's about taking a look at what's around you as a starting point and then doing the work and doing your homework. And to me, that's an important and good starting point. And I don't have all the answers, but I know we can't get anywhere unless we do the work of looking at, you know, what's around us now and where we came from. I agree with that. Um, I would also just add, uh, along with the look at the reality and kind of, I hate to say know the enemy, but um, within the Black community, whether like the diaspora or whether I'm actually just from the continent or I'm African-American, I think more work needs to be done on all of our parts to kind of not look at each other as again the enemy um and to just see that the sooner we're able to just this sounds so fairy tale like but the sooner we're just able to band together and just see each other for the fact that you know you're black i'm black a lot of the time um being african in the states you are also just straddling this line of like, where am I from? Because I grew up here, um, but I still have such a claim to my culture and um, my country. Uh, but at the same time, it's like, I've grown up here. I've seen the struggle. I've been part of the struggle in, in most instances. But uh, I feel as though African-Americans are less willing to let Africans claim that struggle as well. It's like, we're here as well. We know what you're going through. I mean, so going also going back to the fact that I was given so much for my family and my culture, it's just one culture. Africa is vast. There's so many countries, so many cultures in West Africa and a lot of other African cultures. Bleaching is still a thing. Bleaching is a thing. It's an epidemic. Um, if we can just all understand that we're all just reaping the struggles from generations before and from colonization and everything, I think just having that level playing field, having that common understanding that we're not each other's enemies, we can work through this, I think it would go a long way. Yeah. And I celebrate both of you just in who you are. And that's to me, especially as women, right? Sometimes I've been 
I felt like we, we come to this place of competition and I know that colorism in my, in my viewpoint has a big deal or has a lot to do with that. And as we come together, we celebrate each other, we promote each other's work, and we understand that we do all have that implicit bias. We do all have that, that mentality and that socialization of what we maybe thought was beautiful or what we maybe thought is valued. And the same thing I would tell a, a white person about checking their implicit bias at the door, know you have it and then be open to the other person's experience. And even in this call, I mean, I'm just sitting and listening to you guys and taking it all in and just really trying to understand your journey and your experiences that give you the viewpoints that you have. And I hope that a lot of our listeners and policymakers, decision makers can really see that this isn't a blanket approach. And we are all a community. And we talk, when we talk about people of color, we talk about brown or black people. But our lived experiences shape so much of who we are and our viewpoints on what some of the issues are. Right. And I would just say, you know, as we wrap up to anybody listening, I would encourage you to go deeper with your friends and the community that you sit in and have these conversations. I'm sitting here, you know, we do this recording via Skype. So I can see all of these beautiful women in front of me, people who I consider some of my very best friends. And we've never had this conversation before. And I think being able to understand your friend's story on a deeper level is so much powerful. Um, I just want to reach across and hug each of you and just tell you that I see your beauty. I hear you and I appreciate you coming on and just sharing your truth um, with strangers. (laughs) Thank you guys. (laughs) No, of course. It's super important. And we have to have these conversations with each other too. You know, I think about, friends that I have that are are black and Latino and, you know, often talk about how they feel like they have to make a choice and what circles, you know, what circles they choose to spend their time in professionally and personally and how they feel, you know, less welcomed in the Latino community than they do in the black community, but also how none of their black friends know that they're also Latino. And it's like, you know, it's like a surprise to them when they find out, oh, you're, you're Dominican, you're Panamanian. I didn't know that. Um, and, you know, I don't think it's fair that, that those friends have to have to choose and have to feel like, you know, one community isn't accepting and one community doesn't see them and value them in the same way, because both of both of these things are true. Their identities are complex and they're valid. And so I couldn't agree more that we have to have these conversations with each other. Thank you both for your time. And this conversation was very insightful. And I am just really appreciative of your time and your your passion toward this conversation. I'm glad you guys have opened up the platform. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. It was great. It's time for action. Checkbox Outreach is more than a podcast and simply putting a check in a box. This is about impact and moving the needle. Aaliyah and Katie, what are the next steps? Okay, Aaliyah, colorism part two. Had some rock star, bomb, beautiful women on the call. I noticed it was a very different dynamic between the part one with the guys on the episode that we did compared to having Xenia and Michelle and our dynamic. And for me, I was just in awe the whole the whole time and just listening and taking in their experience because it was very different than my own. What are 
your thoughts on on how the episode kind of transpired? First and foremost, I am so, so glad that we did part two. Um, I feel like, you know, colorism, it's just one aspect, but there's so many layers. And I think we started to get in to with Xenia and Michelle, um, how it intersects with different races and ethnicities, how these issues play out and are unique in terms of gender. So, so, so glad we had the conversation. I think for me too, I also noticed a different dynamic. Um, I was trying to put into my you know, a posture of listening and really absorbing their stories. I think for me, these are two women who I have been friends with now for almost eight years. And I have admired them from afar. I have been their cheerleaders and celebrated them. But to hear their stories in this way, these were conversations we've never had. And so I think it just puts me that I want to have more of those conversations with my friends, even if they get uncomfortable. I want to be a part of that uncomfortable space with them so that I know more about them and can further just, you know, help them and help myself celebrate and empower other women in my circle. Yeah, I love the global perspective that they brought to the conversation. I know Isaiah and I grew up in Pemberton, New Jersey, like we have that perspective, but it just really showed how especially women. I think the conversation around women's issues and colorism and our standard of beauty compared to Mm -hmm. whiteness, that clearly the guys weren't talking about that so much. But it was, I think each conversation that we had could be its whole separate, or each conversation we had could be a whole separate podcast episode that we should unpack and dive a little bit deeper into the conversation and shed more light and awareness on some of these issues and standards. Agreed. I know right after Michelle texts me and she's like, you should talk to this person and this person. Oh, and this I love person. it. And you could talk about this topic in terms of beauty. You could talk about the different shades of color and the spectrum we talked about. She mentioned, you know, colorism and intersectionality, colorism and geography. So I agree with you. This is only the beginning of the conversation. As I would say, I have felt for, for all of the podcast episodes we've done so far, we're just scratching the surface. And I hope that this um, creates a space for people to be more curious, to start asking questions and to push us on what's the next conversation. Yeah, for sure. So the steps here, the key takeaways are just get the conversation started. And I think there's power in the discomfort. There's power in sitting there and being like, oh, wow, I never even thought about that before. That's a whole different take. And diving deeper on that. Like, why do I feel like that? How can I learn more? What resources are available to me? But we have to start somewhere as uncomfortable as we are, or even if we don't like what we're hearing, we can't discredit. I can't discredit your private school experience, right? Like I can't, you can't discredit mine. And so it's just hearing the experience and seeing how that adds value to the whole person and then going from there. Exactly. And to our listeners, um, we have recently started a resource page on our website. So I would encourage you to go there. Katie and I are going to be posting some links um, to books and resources and questions that you can ask if you're not sure how to get the conversation started. Nice plug, Ali. I'm so proud of your sales skills. <laughs> I got to plug all your hard work. Evolving. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to another episode of Checkbox Outreach. We hope that the conversation inspired you to get a little uncomfortable and have the difficult conversations. As always, you can find us on our website at checkboxoutreach.com or find us on Spotify or iTunes.